It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This is the Hot Stove Report. Going, going, goodbye baseball. On 710 ESPN Seattle. 710sports.com and the 710 Seattle app. Ah, yes, welcome inside the Hot Stove. Happy as always you can be with us. Aaron Goldsmith alongside Gary Hill and the Hoffer. Dan, the man, Wilson. Danny, I have not seen you all winter. How are you? I'm doing great, Aaron. It's great to be here. It's great to be seated next to you. <laughs> I appreciate the Hoffer thing, but Gar's the Hoffer. Let's let's put this straight. And, and today was, was Mar- great Mariners Hall of Famer Dan Wilson. Thank you. <laughs> we'll be talking plenty of Edgar Martinez today uh, throughout the show. And Gary, this is a tremendous hot stove show, is it not? Uh, yeah, I'm really excited about this one. We it's had excellent. A, we had a chance uh, about an hour or so ago to speak on the phone with. Well, speaking of the Hall of Fame. Uh, this year's Spink Award winner, the Spink Award, is the counterpart to the Frick Award that, of course, Dave Niehaus won, given to the um, best broadcaster, that he who shows the most excellence in baseball broadcasting. The Spink Award goes to he that shows similar uh, excellence in baseball writing. And one of our absolute favorite writers, Jason Stark, is this year's award winner. Jason joined us on the phone earlier tonight. We'll have a chance to play for that. You that conversation coming up shortly. Uh, we're going to bring some pretty serious nerd power to the show tonight, guys. And uh, not not on the phone because there's, a, there's interference and static. and We cannot risk that. But in studio, not only for one but for two segments, we have Jesse Smith, the uh, director of all things nerds with the Mariners Analytics uh, professor. This is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be outstanding. I wanted to go whole show, but I thought we <laughs> thought we'd just go two segments so we wouldn't scare them off. And for those of you who are like, um, oh, gosh. Analytics, sabermetrics, that's not for me. You know, maybe it will be by the end of the first hour. I think so. Okay, and we'll make it very comfortable for you to tune into. Also, you, know, this, you never kind of know uh, what titles will be given in baseball these days in front offices. Uh, Brian DeLunis was the Mariners' bullpen coach. He has been uh, newly named the Director of Pitching Performance and Strategies. And he will be joining us in the second hour to talk about Mariners pitchers and pitching. And one of our, our favorite writers, we already talked about Stark. We've got two for you tonight. We will have a chance to speak on the phone with a Rob Nyer, who somewhat recently wrote a, a book, a Powerball, The Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. Really dives into one game in particular between the A's and the Astros in September. And Rob has been so good to us and Mariners Radio over the years. It's going to be great to have him on the show tonight. He's always fantastic. He's always fun to talk to. We've actually talked to him a couple times while he was writing the book. It's a fascinating premise. I'm excited to talk to him more about it. Now that he's, it's a, an award-winning book. It is an award-winning else. book. Yeah. Uh, won the uh, the Casey Award for the best baseball book of the year. But first and foremost, Dan the Man, today was a big day at T-Mobile Park as uh, your former teammate and now Hall of Famer, Edgar Martinez, uh, fielded many questions from the press here in Seattle, and he began with this opening statement. Thank you all for being here today, and uh, especially some, most of you that voted for me uh, all these years. I've really appreciated uh, the support. Uh, also, I wanted to thank 
the, uh, the Seattle fans for amazing uh, 18 years as a player and, uh, you know, another 10 years supporting me for the Hall of Fame candidacy. Uh, the support uh, has been amazing, incredible. Uh, also, the organization, the Mariners organization, has been incredible. Uh, sharing uh, all the, uh, the stats that I didn't even know about. Uh, and, and I think between the fans and the Mariners organization, it really made a big difference. Uh, and I think this is, uh, uh, is why I'm sitting in here uh, and why I was elected for the Hall of Fame. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, really appreciate it. Danny, what's it like for you to hear that? Well, I mean, you know, here's, here's Gar, who's kind of a non-emotional guy. It's one of the keys that he had to his success is being able to be steady Eddie. And you could hear the emotion in his voice, I think, uh, especially when he talked about the fans here in Seattle and, and getting a little bit choked up about that. Um, you, you, this community, uh, this organization means so much to him. And, and uh, this, this Hall of Fame uh, vote ha, ha meant so much to him. And, and you could just, you know, for a guy who doesn't show a lot of emotion, you can feel it. I can feel it through the radio. And uh, it's, it's just, it, it brings goosebumps to me. And, and I can't imagine what, you know, the joy that he's got in his heart right now. And uh, it's just uh, just an awesome experience to see Gar, and I can't wait for July to, to see him go in and give a speech. Can we, can we talk about not showing much emotion? <laughs> Look, can, we, can we listen to this? Hello. Hello, may I speak with Edgar Martinez, please? Yes, this is Edgar. Edgar, hi. This is uh, Jack O'Connell. I'm with the Baseball Writers Association of America, and I'm calling to tell you that the writers have elected you to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. I know, you've, I know you've been waiting a long time. Uh, you know, some of it, some of us voted for you ten times, uh, but uh, there's an expression better late than never. So very happy for you, Edgar. Really am. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, Edgar, I'm calling. Your dry cleaning is ready to be picked <laughs> know, up. That's what I was, and your, uh, your car's ready to be picked. Anytime up. you want to come by. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for the call. I'll I'll be there shortly. Have have a very nice day. I mean, that is. As true to Edgar as anything, isn't it? Absolutely, and that's <laughs> but but again underscores how important and, and how emotional today is, and and uh, coming back to Seattle, you know that call was he was in New York. It's a little foreign to him, but getting back home here, sure. I'm sure all that stuff's just flowing pretty pretty heavy for him. And I did like the dig, the subtle dig by Jack when he said, you know, some of us did vote for you <laughs> ten times, ten times, <laughs> right, right. Uh, really good stuff, Dan. I'm glad you're here tonight. We'll be talking plenty about Edgar. And we've got uh, some Edgar and Hall of Fame conversation coming straight ahead. Jason Stark, the newly named Spink Award winner, he will be enshrined in Cooperstown for his excellence in baseball writing. Jason Stark is our guest here on the Hot Stove. An earlier conversation with Gary and myself coming straight up after this timeout. Back to more of the Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. I grew up wanting to be a baseball writer. I'm serious about that. That's all I ever dreamed of from the time I was old enough to dream about being anything. So to be honored here in New York, the mecca of baseball writing, is one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me. Hot Stove Show rolls along. Happy you're with us here tonight. Aaron Goldsmith alongside Gary Hill and the sound you just heard there from 
Well, now Hall of Famer Jason Stark. You can read him, of course, on The Athletic. He is reason enough alone to subscribe to that wonderful publication. You see him all the time these days on MLB Network. And, Jason, uh, just a couple of nights ago, you were honored in New York City. You were the latest winner of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award for Excellence in Baseball Writing. I think a lot of us, Jason, when we read months ago at this point that you were the recipient of that and now a Hall of Famer, we thought, how is Jason not in the Hall of Fame already? Congratulations, <laughs> Jason. This is wonderful news. There's nobody more deserving. Uh, how must that feel to win that award? Uh, Aaron, thank you. It, it's been really quite amazing. Uh, you know, uh, two weeks ago I was up in Cooperstown for my orientation for next July, and then uh, this past Friday night was the New York Baseball Writers' Dinner. And I, I keep having this feeling that it's like it's happening to somebody else, but apparently it's happening to me, <laughs> you know? And so I'm just trying to make that sink in. I, when I was in Cooperstown, I went through that Spink Award exhibit, and there's some pretty famous human beings there, you know, Red Smith and Grantland Rice and Damon Runyon and Ring Lardner, Peter Gammons, Roger Angel. And as people go through that exhibit for the rest of time looking at those names, somehow they're going to stumble upon mine. It's, that's just hard to make my brain compute that that actually happened. I mean, I think about all the Hall of Famers you've voted for, all the Hall of Famers you've written about, and there you are. Have you thought about what this summer's going to be like for you? Well, I, I, I mean, I'm having a hard time grasping it, as I said, but, you know, going to Cooperstown and having them walk me through everything that's going to happen next July, that helped make it sink in a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the real moment that I had was last year's induction weekend. It was also July. I, I just learned I was going to be on the ballot for this year. And I was walking into the uh, the same ceremony that I will speak at, it, uh, except last year it was Bob Costas who won the Frick Award and Sheldon Ocker who won the Spink Award, which I won. And I ran into an old friend of mine just as I was walking into Doubleday Field, and he said, I'm coming back here next year for you. And, you know, all of a sudden I looked around, and all, every seat in Doubleday Field was filled. And I looked at that stage with the, the microphone and the seats for all the living Hall of Famers. And I went, oh, my God, <laughs> Could that, is that really happening? Could that be possible? I, you know, like I'm not a big me, me, me kind of guy. Um, and so, so this has been, it's been surreal. It's been awesome. I've heard from, a, from literally thousands of people. But there's still a side of me that's trying to convince myself that it's actually happening. You know, Jason, I am curious we want to talk about a lot of things regarding the Hall of Fame, but before we kind of transition to Edgar and that along those lines, I am very curious. Somewhere right now, Jason, there is somebody who will win this award 30 or 40 years from now, and they will remember reading you as an inspiration to getting into this industry. Who was it for you, however many years ago it was, that really helped propel you to where you are today? Well, I mean, thanks for saying that. I was introduced uh, at the New York Baseball Writers' Dinner uh, by my good friend Tyler Kepner from the New York Times. Tyler once worked in Seattle, right? Covered the Mariners. Sure. And, you know, when I, I, I was, you know, I had been at the Inquirer very long, but Tyler was 14 years old. And he was putting out a, a baseball magazine with his brother and his cousin. And he, he 
sent me a copy of this baseball magazine, and I was I thought to myself, oh my god! So I wrote him back this two page letter, which he credits for inspiring his whole career, and that's amazing enough. But his you know his mom saved the letter, and he read parts of it at the New York Baseball Writers Dinner. And here's the the parallel is that when I was a teenager. I used to write letters to a guy named Stan Hockman. This is before email. Stan Hockman was a great columnist at the New York Daily News. Uh, he used to show up from time to time with the sports reporters. Just one, just an awesome, one of the awesome Philadelphia sports writers who really helped form my view of what a sports writer should be and how much fun you could have doing it. And Stan Hockman would write back to me, and that really left a mark on me to where I have always tried to do that you know, when kids get in touch with me, and I'm still doing it. You know, doing it was help trying to help somebody last week. Um, we, I, it's our responsibility in this business to try to pay it forward, the way Stan Hockman did for me. Of course, July is going to be a special day for you. It's going to be a special day for the entire city, Seattle, and the Pacific Northwest, with Edgar going in the Hall of Fame as well. You've been voting for Edgar. What was your reaction to see Edgar Martinez? Voted into the Hall of Fame. You know, I, I was really uh, thrilled. Obviously, uh, you know, there was—I think there was one year out of the ten I didn't vote for him. He got he got squeezed off in kind of a ballot crunch, and you know, the rule of ten has forced us to play some ballot management tricks. But I, you know, I think I'm one of the people who saw in Edgar from the beginning that this was one of the great hitters of modern times. I wrote a book, it's something like 12 years ago now, it was about the most overrated and underrated players in baseball history called The Stark Truth, and I had Edgar in the in the book as the most underrated DH in history. And, the you know, the fact that over a 10-year period, people began to see it and then made it happen, uh, you know, it's a it's a great testament to how good the information is now, and it's even a greater testament to what an incredible offensive force Edgar Martinez was. Newly minted Hall of Famer Jason Stark is our guest here on the Hot Stove. And Jason, as you have recently documented in The Athletic in a piece you wrote four elections ago, Edgar got 27% of the vote. He was 264 votes short of election. <laughs> 11 players received more votes that year than Edgar did. So with that in mind, to see him go in this year in his final year of eligibility by roughly 10% more than what he needed, so he didn't just squeak in. If you were to rewind the tape, Jason, and go back to not that long ago, right, four years ago, would if somebody asked you, Jason, be honest, you're voting for Edgar, but do you really think he's going to get in, what would have been your response? Yeah, I would have thought there would be no chance he's going to get in. I, you know, as it turned out, he did something that no Hall of Fame candidate you know, in the history of modern voting has done. He jumped by double digits four elections in a row, right? He went up by 15%, then 12%, then 15%, then 16%. And that's how he got in. That, you know, that almost never happens. But, you know, I think it really helped him that, you know, uh, the, the year that Randy Johnson and Pedro Martinez got elected, for example, they both talked about he was the guy they hated to face the most. Uh, Randy, of course, played with him, saw him at his greatest. And, 
you know, if you think about how different Hall of Fame voting was a decade ago versus now, I, you know, back then, it doesn't seem that long ago, but we used to really care about the counting numbers 10 years ago. Not so much maybe me, but a, a lot of voters. And even, you know, a few years ago, a guy with 300 homers and 2,200 hits, that was a long way from 500 homers or 3,000 hits. It was hard to make people understand what Edgar was. But now we have so many great tools, way better statistical tools than we ever had at any point since I've been a voter. And I think you're starting to see that reflected in how we vote, not just on him, but a number of players. So that being said, is voting easier now or is it more difficult now than it was five, even ten years ago? Uh, it's never been easy for me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you, I think in a lot of ways it's more difficult because, you know, I think when I first became a voter, there were there were quite a few voters whose whole process consisted of I'd look at the name, I'd ask myself, Does this guy feel like a Hall of Famer when I watched him, and then if they said yes, they'd vote for him. But then maybe the next year they'd think, you know, I really want Willie Mays to go in alone or pick a name. And so they wouldn't vote for him the next year. And we're seeing much better attention to detail, much better process, much uh, deeper thinking and use of these statistical tools now than at any time before. I think, you know, as long as we leave the PED part of this out of the conversation, the thing that, that, is tricky though is you know in the age of social media and an age where because of it everybody can weigh in on your ballot uh there's much more pressure now to submit the right ballot to vote for the quote-unquote right players mm-hmm. and you know I, I in the column i wrote after the election i documented how we're seeing more more evidence that voters think the same vote the same or more similarly than at any point in the history of voting. I, I mean, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, I do think it is a thing. Final minute here with Jason Stark. And Jason, I, I really hope that you can take Gary and myself kind of behind the curtain for a moment because Gary and I, like you, we love the numbers. Like we love ridiculous, random you won't believe this kind of numbers. And Jason, every year you write what has got to be one of the most entertaining columns, and that is the truest, strangest but truest feats of the year, right? And it's a it's a yeah. it's a long and in depth and kind of at times nitty gritty, but in a really entertaining read. And I have to know, Jason, how do you compile this information from the beginning of the season to Salvador Perez uh, injuring his knee? <laughs> Carrying luggage for one of the strange but true injuries of the season, all the way to uh, Juan Soto hitting a home run before actually debuting in the major leagues. How do you go about compiling this and then actually putting it to paper? Uh, you know, I've created a monster, Aaron. That's the best way I could put it. <laughs> you know, I, I I love doing this column. People seem to really love reading this column. I start hearing from them as soon as the season's over. It's our, my favorite column. Here, you got to do this. So, I just get started i you know i i have folders in my computer where i dump this stuff uh i just i keep a daily logbook 
every day of the entire season, and I go back through it before I write this thing. And now, you know, now I've got years and years of them in my uh, Wild Pitches book. There were some. Of, there were some of my favorites ever. Like my, I think my favorite Strange but True ever is Benji Molina hitting a home run, but not even scoring a run on his own homer. So, wait, what? <laughs> this is the kind of thing that keeps me in business. Now, how did that happen? Uh, this is okay. I'll try to do this quick because I know you're running out of time. But uh, Benji Molina was a giant at this point, <laughs> and he hit the ball at AT&T Park, and. Uh, oh, you mean like literally? Top. You mean like literally? He played for the Giants, not like <laughs> he was a Giant. <laughs> yeah, he did, right. He played for the San Francisco Giants. He hit the ball at AT and T Park off the top of the left field wall, and because he's Benji Molina, he stops at first base. <laughs> and uh, Bruce Bochy sends in a pinch runner for him, and as Benji's trotting back to the dugout, Omar Vizquel was on the Giants at that time. Goes up to Bruce Bochy and says, you know what? I think that ball actually left the park and then bounced back in. I would have the umpires go take a look at that if I were you. So the umpires look at the call, realize that the ball was a home run. They do the home run sign. Out trots Benji Molina to go complete his home run trot. And the umpires say, wait a second, not so fast, you're out of the game. You can't come back. So I believe the pinch runner was Emmanuel Burris. I'm doing this off the top of my head. So he scores the run on Benji Molina's homer. But it's such a mess that I, I, the last time I looked, the baseballreference.com computers still do not believe that he did not score the, the run on his own homer because the computer won't take it. And this is why Jason Stark is in the Hall yes. of Fame. Jason, this is that is the perfect way to wrap things up. Uh, we so appreciate your time. Congratulations again. We're so excited for you this summer. Uh, you'll be seeing Edgar there in Cooperstown. And uh, thank you for joining us here tonight on the Hot Stove. Hey, really enjoyed it, guys. Thank you so much for having me. There's Jason Stark of The Athletic and MLB Network and the latest winner, this year's winner of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award for Excellence in Baseball Writing. We've got more coming right up on the Hot Stove after this timeout. Welcome back inside the hot stove. Aaron Goldsmith, Chandler Man Wilson, Gary Hill with us as well. And we're really excited. This is the first of two segments in studio. We are joined by Jesse Smith, the Mariners Director of Baseball Analytics. You have heard Jesse a number of times over the last couple of years, either on the Mariners Baseball Podcast or on a pregame show or somewhere on our airwaves. Jesse, thanks for coming into the studio. We're really happy you're here. Guys, I am in awe of present company and always <laughs> a thrill. You're Studio looking at Dan, I no, see. That's Goldie. Oh, Goldie. <laughs> it's, everyone. it's everyone. Hey, Jesse, you know, before we kind of start to deep dive into some things, I'm just curious, this has been a very busy offseason, needless to say, for Jerry DePoto. Uh, what's it been like for you guys inside the analytics department? Well, you know, Jerry made sure that we signed contracts with no overtime in them so that <laughs> uh, he could make sure that, you know, he'd get the most out of us. Uh, he keeps us extremely busy. It's it's a ton of fun. I think I imagine what it would be like to work for a different team that made just a couple of moves in the offseason. And, you know, it's like this is this is what we live for is the nerds who can't play, uh, play fantasy baseball and then uh, making trades. And, it, it, you know, it's it's a wild ride. It's a ton of fun. So let's let's dig into some of that work that you've been doing. We had a chance to talk with Jerry on the recent Wheelhouse podcast that just came out. You can subscribe on iTunes, wherever you find your podcasts. And he had mentioned the J.P. Crawford deal and his excitement for that deal. But before he talked nuts and bolts of that deal, he talked about a 
blank piece of paper. As we started the off-season foray, one of the things, if we were to move Gene Segura, one of the things we did not have in our system was an heir apparent at shortstop. So we had spent a good deal of our, let's say, month of September, early October, when we were reimagining what we wanted the rosters to look like. Each one of our front office members got a blank roster sheet. So a 25-man roster with no ideas. It's blank, fill in the spots. And nothing is impossible. Any contract can be traded. All you have to do is you have to sign free agents for viable dollars. You have to put together trades that you think are genuinely possible and then carry over players that that you feel make the most sense for us. And in virtually all of those, J.P. Crawford was mentioned as as a future shortstop for our team. And uh, there were numerous different scenarios where we were going to be acquiring him. Uh, you know, it, sometimes it included Gene Segura, and sometimes it was other players. But he was clearly a target player for most of us. And therefore, when we started talking to the Phillies, and, and to be frank, we talked about the Phillies about more than just Gene Segura. There were other players throughout the offseason that we had discussed with them. And each time we brought up J.P., but the only way we were able to access JP were in trades for Gene Segura or at the time Edwin Diaz. Fascinating stuff. You were given a blank piece of paper, Jesse. I can confirm. I was <laughs> given a blank piece of paper. Was JP Crawford on your paper? JP Crawford was, in fact, on my paper. And this is somebody you really like. Tell us about him. Yeah. So there's there's many things to like about JP Crawford. He's been a consensus industry top prospect for years. Uh, I, th I imagine the reason why a lot of people had him on there uh, as a part of their ideas is because of uh, context. So you have a prospect who's just a consensus, really interesting player, and he's in an organization that is trying to win now, and he's hit a few bumps in the road. Uh, so that presents an opportunity to maybe go somewhere else where a team will give them a longer leash and really see what we have. So I think it sort of made sense as a natural, maybe, you know, names aside as a concept of something that makes sense to go for a player like that. And then with JP, there's, there's, there's a lot there. He's, he's always had a lot of tools. Anytime you have someone who can play the shortstop position defensively, and evaluators have always thought that he could be above average defensively at short, that's you know a fantastic place to start, uh, and he's also shown the ability to hit. Uh, I think uh, I know some of the reaction to that trade was not extremely positive right off the bat. His stats don't exactly jump off the page, but uh, underlying it, there's just a really solid base there. You have a young player that's already producing it in his limited major league sample at something close to a major league average shortstop, and he's had sporadic playing time, injury issues, He's still very young, and I think if you were to say we could have J.P. Crawford, you know, a year ago, two years ago, the fan base would be, you know, uh, jumping for joy. And but in the industry and just as fans, we, we tend to get impatient with players. You know, we say they're the next great thing, and then it doesn't happen for them the next year, so we write them off. But if you just look at this guy, uh, not not much has changed. If I didn't see. From what I saw in his re in his recent track record, there's there's really not any huge negatives to suggest that it's it's not working out. It's just it's been slowed by uh, by context, injury, opportunity. Uh, you know, there's just 
he could be a, a plush everyday shortstop for the foreseeable future. That sounds like the greatest homework assignment of all time. Can you imagine? I know. Like how long it would that sounds take us? spectacular. <laughs> I mean, what was the conversations like when everyone comes back with their own sheets of, you know, different players? I mean, is it did just- you get? Did you have Machado and Harper on your? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's how you build a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are the? You just lock yourself in a room and everyone hash it out. What is that? What do those conversations look like? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a lot of fun because, uh, you know, you don't want to just barge into Jerry's office every day and give him your five-year plan for uh, <laughs> how to do your job. Uh, so when he solicits everyone's feedback, you know, a lot of us work long hours uh, and are behind the scenes, and, and it gives everyone a chance to have a voice and to just and to show their best ideas. So it's a really great cre- – I thought it was a really great creative way to just source ideas, less about names necessarily, more more concepts. You know, these are teams – these are concepts. Here's an interesting name, but names can change. You know, we all have different opinions on 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 player evaluation, but you can uncover really interesting concepts for trades that lead to an actual trade. Uh, yeah, we ended up. You know, we it took a lot of time. I think some people more than others. I, you know, I think uh, especially for some of the, maybe the junior employees, the the chance to to show the sure. GM their their idea, you know, got to obsess over the like a, like this. Is what movies are made from, yeah. you know, it's the 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 intern who just got hired, who's mopping the floors at night, who has the breakthrough idea of how to how to build a franchise. Oh yeah, and and that's one thing we emphasize at the Mariners that you know once you're in as an intern, like you can you have direct access. You have an idea. It it it, it goes to the top real quick. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I had people obsessing or. Panicking over, you know, their 2023 closer. But, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's like some things we just can't predict. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it was it was really fun. Uh, a lot of terrible ideas that'll hopefully never see the light of day on my part. But uh, yeah, we, we ran into some good ones. It sounds like. Well, I got to say, Jesse, every time you know we had a chance to, a couple of weeks ago to be down in Arizona, uh, to hear a lot of presentations put forth by your department, and every time I listen to you guys. I learn a ton. It's, it's it's really incredible. You guys do a really really nice job. So um, obviously, when I look at a when I look at a, at a roster or I look at a team, I think my eyes go directly to that C position, the catcher, because it's so vital. Uh, we've got a young one coming from the White Sox, Omar Nervaez. And just curious how that whole process came about, and and what's your thinking on Omar? What can we expect? Yeah, uh, that's a great one. So I think with it starts with Colome. Uh, we traded Colome for Narvaez, and early on in the offseason, we identified that you know uh, we're not we're not looking to spend big bucks on a closer right now. That's given limited resources. That's probably not what we want to do. And Colome has that track record. He's going to be he's going to be a valuable trade chip, and uh, but he comes at a cost. So he he made sense for us to be a guy that we might look to trade if given the opportunity. And uh, so the White Sox come calling. And it was it actually happened incredibly quickly. A lot of these, you know, a lot of times a concept comes and then we talk it through as a group and we go back and forth and then we send them something and they send us a counteroffer and, you know, 99% of the time it fizzles out. But this time I feel like it was, it was like same day. Uh, they were just apparently less interested in Narvaez than us. And I think, you know, some of that perhaps is that he's uh, struggled defensively by a lot of the metrics in the past. Uh, so, but he's been he's been great offensively in, in his time, especially at the catcher position, where as you guys know, it's very difficult to find offense. Uh, 
So I think that we just identified, you know, that is that was our opportunity to get him because of his defensive struggles. That's what made him available. If he was a def- if he had been defensively great in the past, there's no way they ever would have traded him. So we looked at him and just, you know, assessed, do we think we can help this guy uh, on defense? And, you know, if so, if we can, then he becomes just a fascinating and valuable player for us uh, in an area of immense need since I believe at the time we, <laughs> we had recently just traded our uh, – <laughs> But um, so I I do think that we have pretty well-built-out systems for evaluating catcher defense, and I think we have a really great flow of ah, communication between the analytics department and the coaches and player development uh, to just really not only assess what's wrong, but to identify why. And, of course, Dan, this is – I'm preaching to the choir here. You're you're one of the guys making this happen uh, as to not only what the problem is, but – you know why and and how we can actually fix it from a mechanical level. It could be it could be a strength issue. It could just be an adjustment that they've never been told. And frankly, in 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 the case of Narvaez, I think some of it he just didn't know. Like it might be some of it might be simple adjustments for him. I think this is going to be fascinating to watch. One of the storylines going into the season and watch because you look at the framing numbers, for example, and it's no secret he's he's been towards the bottom of those numbers. But I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. Which all the with all the emphasis going in on the work, how much improvement we could see in that position? Well, and I, I will just say from experience, I know that sometimes those numbers—not that they're misleading—but guys can be on the top of the, of the of the set of numbers one year and literally be towards the bottom the, the following year, and vice versa. Guys that can grade out poorly, make a minor adjustment, do something, and puts them it kind of catapults mm-hmm. them to the top of the numbers. So. You're, to to your point, he's got a guy. You know, he can hit. He offensively, yeah. he can do some things. And you might, you know, you might find that one thing defensively that really helps his framing. And all of a sudden, he jumps to the top. And now, and now, now you're looking at a person with a lot of value. And with those offensive numbers from that position right now, that is a very rare thing, especially in the American League, but in baseball in general. It just like first base and catcher are yeah. essentially vacant positions offensively in the American League this past season. It was really hard to find offense yeah. at those two positions. Well, 2019 single-game tickets are on sale now, which means you can purchase seats to some of the biggest games of the year, including opening day against the World Series champion Boston Red Sox. You can also catch a series against the Cubs, the Cardinals, the Yankees, and enjoy six fireworks nights coming up this season. So head by on buymariners.com to pick up your seats for 2019. We've got Jesse Smith, the Mariners Director of Baseball Analytics, in studio. He joins us. Uh, in the next segment as well, happy to have Jesse with us as the Hot Stove Show continues after this timeout. Now we've got a jam-packed hot stove tonight. We already heard from Hall of Fame writer Jason Stark. We'll be hearing from Mariners, well, formerly their bullpen coach, and now Brian DeLunas has taken on a front office role. We'll hear from Brian in the second hour, uh, along with one of our favorite baseball writers, Rob Nyer, who uh, recently wrote an award-winning book. We'll be talking to Rob in the second hour, but right now our Second segment in studio with Jesse Smith, the Mariners Director of Baseball Analytics. Jesse, you mentioned something before the break about, you know, Nervaez and, and just his ability behind the plate and, and, and working on framing. And, and you mentioned that maybe it's something mental, maybe it's something physical, maybe it's something high performance, maybe it's something they can work out in a weight room or a training room. Can you talk a little bit, it, it seems to me, and, and, and being around it a little bit that I have, uh, you kind of look, you know, the analytics sort of afford you the, the, the possibility of looking at the complete player rather than just one dimension, one physical dimension. You kind of look more to the complete player. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, if, if I understand correctly. So I, th- I think in the past, 
analytics uh, has been just looking, valuing players for what they are and acting as if that is all they will be. You know, maybe some aging projections or something. But now we're at a point where we're looking to to maximize players, uh, and and that is a much larger thing than just their their statistical track record. And I think that's one thing that uh, Jerry has done really well with the Mariners is is open up the lines of communication and emphasize that it is it is the job. Say so for Narvaez, great example. It's the job of the of the analysts to break him down and identify all the strengths and weaknesses and then to pass that on uh, to our specialists in, in PD, strength and conditioning, our coaches to assess why that is uh, because you know those are those are certainly areas that are out of my expertise far more in your expertise Dan but uh, so so that is what we're gonna do and, and with Narvaez like who's to say uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if we've identified exactly what we're gonna do I, I'm sure that I'm sure that we're looking into it uh, but and, but the point is, we're just we're looking at it at a much more granular level and really assessing players uh, down to maybe physical weaknesses or uh, mental issues, uh, everything. And so the communication between those groups is key. Oh yeah, I, I, honestly, it's really been a ton of fun too. Just it it really opens up everyone's horizons. I think to open up a line of communications, like I just learned so much uh, from the PD group and the coaches, and I think vice versa. I, I think you had mentioned we had our, our con ed continuing education where really it was all the departments presenting and educating the other departments on their niche of expertise or uh, various expertise. And and I think this is one of those areas where when it comes to mechanics, I I know squat. And uh, <laughs> but I'm learning because we're we're making we're making we're giving me that opportunity to learn. It's a ton of fun. You say Kikuchi in normal years would be like the most talked about thing for an organization in terms of a splash during the winter. There have been so many moves by the Mariners that it can kind of be easy for Kikuchi to just kind of be a bullet point in transactions. But this is a major move that Jerry and the Mariners pulled off this winter. None of us have seen him pitch in person. We've only seen the clips online and on MLB Network. Uh, this is somebody that you guys obviously really like. What else can you tell us about him? Yeah, uh, so we've been doing our homework on Kikuchi for a while. Uh I have never seen him in person either, but I do know a lot about him from uh, <laughs> data sources. Uh, yeah, and and you're right. It it is it is a big splash. I think that probably goes under the radar, and, and certainly not something a team would do if it were in full rebuild. Uh, it was it was a very opportunistic, an opportunistic splash for a player that we think can be valuable for years to come. And we're confident in that, in part at least, because. Uh, of our of our trackman system, what a lot of fans know as Statcast, but just our radar system looking at his pitch qualities uh, in the Japanese baseball league, the NPB, and it is not a 100% apples to apples. Things are slightly different there. The baseball is slightly different. Things like that, but for the most part, things translate when players move between the leagues uh, and how the ball moves out of the, out of the pitcher's hand, and he has uh, as as best as we can tell. Uh, from an analytical lens, four very solid major league average or better pitches, uh, in certain cases well above average. So we, we believe that even if we're overly optimistic that we have a very good player on our hands that you know will slot towards the top of any major league rotation. One thing, you mentioned this earlier when talking about J.P. Crawford. You just mentioned it now with the repertoire of YK. I think there are some people listening right now 
who will hear you talk about a player and his skill set as major league average. And I think to the kind of the untrained baseball fan, they think, well, I don't want something average, right? If I'm going to have a hamburger, I don't want an average hamburger. I want a great hamburger. But it's different in baseball when you talk about average over average. Can you just kind of explain the vernacular? Yeah, good, good call, Aaron. I got I got to tone down the nerd speak. Okay, <laughs> let, me, let me think here. So yeah, that's that. That is a good point. Right. So when we talk about major league average, what are we saying? We're saying one of the best in the world. Uh, to be major league average means that you are amongst the very best of your of your profession. Uh, so maybe a synonym would be very very good, but. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you're at the median of the top tier. Exactly. So, right. So that's those are those are players that are getting paid millions, earning millions of dollars uh, every year because they are in yeah the top 100 of of all pitchers in the world. So that's major league average, top 100 in the world, potato potato. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you which one sounds more impressive. But for YK's situation, you talk about his pitch mix. I mean, if he has one or two pitches that are above average or well above major league average, and the fourth pitch, which some guys don't even have a fourth pitch, is average, that's spectacular. Oh, yeah. he. I, I, I hesitate to put a ceiling on what he could be. And, you know, there's a huge adjustment and, all, you know, there's this whole human element. And sure. Although he seems like an awesome oh my dude. Gosh. Absolutely. Yeah, amazing. Uh, but, yeah, he, he certainly has the pitches – if he if he executes them, and that's one thing that he was exceptional at is is executing pitches in the Japanese baseball league, that uh, he should have no problem getting major league pitches pitch, major league hitters out. And I also think that you know with our systems in place, we can really optimize uh, you know what he can do. So I'm we're we're really excited about it. You mentioned how much work you put in Kikuchi and how long you've been watching him. I, I think about all the different players. I mean, whether you're talking about uh, players in minor league systems now, players in college, I mean, players you're looking at down the road, Japan. I mean, how many players are you running through your systems? I mean, we're talking thousands, right? Yeah, it's definitely thousands. Beyond that, I can't say I've really taken stock of, of the exact number, but you have to track every league. Mm-hmm. Uh, good players can, can come out of the woodwork and, uh, and, you know, baseball is not just an American sport. So, you know, a lot of the best, a lot of the best uh, players are international. And, uh, yeah, we, we have to track it all. And we have to have a scouting network that is flagging these players and notifying us. Uh, so, yeah, it's a the major league teams are just the tip of the iceberg. A couple of minutes left with Jesse Smith, the Mariners director of baseball analytics. And, Jesse, you know, some people, I think, have this idea that people who do what you do are locked in a closet with one lone swinging light bulb back and forth and wireless internet access, and all you're doing is typing up spreadsheets, sliding them under the door for guys like Jerry and Justin Hollander to, to then look at. I mean, you guys are, as you've kind of documented already, very much involved with transactions, with trades and acquiring players. Is there a situation outside of that blank piece of paper that we already talked about where there was – somebody in your department that was very influential in maybe opening the eyes to Jerry or Justin in making a move or basically just had your fingerprints on it? Yeah, great question. Well, first I'll say that I actually have a window now, Aaron, (laughs) so it's not just a closet. But uh, yeah, I think that's one thing that's that's really great about uh, the Mariners atmosphere, which is just a phenomenal place to work uh, in baseball operations. 
is that a good idea a good idea will get will get to those who can make it actionable like Jerry will hear your ideas and and he will he will execute them immediately he will if you sell him a good idea he will text the other gm right away like i've seen it many <laughs> multiple times you're like wow can you know can i text him no uh, but uh I, I one example that comes to mind is uh so in, in preparation for the offseason, or maybe at the very beginning of the offseason, we identified a, a host of teams that were our most likely trade partners. And, the Rays. Right. Uh, yeah, of course the Rays. We, it's, it's always the Rays. Uh, but uh, so we all got together, uh, all our top evaluators and our analytics team and our leadership group uh, in a big boardroom for multiple days with the idea that we would just go through, I, I believe it was 10 teams, we didn't get through them all in those three days because you know, things get off the rails when you start talking about players that you love. But uh, any case, long story short, we're talking about the Rays and the Rays farm system, which is, I'd say is consensus number one. It's it's so deep. They just have it's what they do. You know that's 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 how the Rays succeed. They have to have that deep prospect pool, and and they are just seem to get better and better at at creating it. But so we're trying to get through the entire Rays system, which takes forever because again they just they have so many great prospects. Uh, hats off to them. And, uh, you know, we've gone through four, some 40 names, and Justin Hollander is leading the meeting. He's doing a great job. And he's, he's, making, he's making a statement, maybe we're transitioning to the next team. And then as if it was a silent room and no one is talking, one of our analysts who's exceptionally talented, Ben Aronow, just, you know, blurts out the name Jake Fraley. We should talk about Jake Fraley. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but. Uh, and and Justin is is like taken aback, like you know, did you not realize that I was speaking? Uh, but uh, but so, in any case, we we discussed Jake Fraley, and that was the first time I believe that we discussed Jake Fraley. Uh, not to say that we wouldn't have discussed him at some later point, but that is when he showed up on the radar, and it was it was as a guy that we might look over, and as we had so to that point, because uh, what he'd done in the minor leagues prior to 2018 was underwhelming. But in 2018, he started doing some things differently that set off some flags wherein we, we look at players. We have a specific type of model to look at, at. We call it skill change reports. We look at for players that are doing things differently. And the main idea is generally to just actually use it to help our scouts in the field. Like, hey, something might be different with this player. Let's get some new eyes on him and make sure that you know, if there's because if you can be first to the party, that's that's how you that's how you win these things. So uh, we end up discussing Jake Fraley, and there's a lot to like there. And then you know, some some odd weeks later, Jake Fraley is a Mariner. That's fantastic. I mean, I think this is the type of kind of behind the curtain access that we are so grateful that you can help provide us with in a front office that is so transparent. And obviously, uh, Jerry speaks about his team with more candor and with more openness than any GM in all of sport. I mean, not just major league baseball, uh, Jesse, it has been an absolute thrill, man, to have you here in studio. Uh, we're going to be talking to you even more as you know, already <laughs> once the season starts, <laughs> but thanks for making the trip in here and having you here has just been a real treat. Thank you, Jesse. It's been a blast. Thanks guys. Ton of fun. That is Jesse Smith. He is uh, the Mariners director of baseball analytics and always a great conversation but all things Mariners. we got plenty more. Second hour of the hot stove is coming your way when we return. Uh, well, shortly after we return, we'll be talking with uh, Brian DeLunis, last year's 
bullpen coach for the Mariners, who's now transitioned to the front office. Good conversations coming up after this timeout. This is the Hot Stove Report. Going, going, goodbye baseball. On 710 ESPN Seattle. 710sports.com and the 710 Seattle app. Hour number two of the Hot Stove. Aaron Goldsmith, Mariners Hall of Famer Dan Wilson, Gary Hill. Happy you're with us on what is a really full show. Hour number one in the books. Jason Stark joining us. Jesse Smith, nerd power for the Mariners joining us. Dan, the man, I think this is, we've gotten to know you very well in the broadcast booth over the years. And one thing I always find very interesting is that even though you played in an era just before, kind of just before, this kind of data revolution, I mean, you are into this stuff, especially when it pertains to the catchers. Well, I think it's, I mean, to, to kind of stick around the game and be a part of it, I think especially with catching, you kind of have to to understand what it's all about. And, um, you know, when I played, there was not the measurement on, on framing, and it wasn't an issue. Uh, and, you know, it's so much a part of the game now. It's really taken over uh, catchers. It's it's basically the, the, the biggest thing that they're measured on. You know, when it was back in the day, it was basically how many guys you could throw out and, and how'd you block the ball and, and uh, you know, those kinds of things. But now it's really framing. How can you frame the ball? How well uh, do you do that? How many strikes can you get for your pitcher? And, and that's that's really the biggest measure for, for those guys. With all the new information, is there anything in particular you look at and say, man, I wish I would have known that when I was playing? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think there is, to me, the, the amount of information that you get on opposing players, opposing hitters, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to put a, together a game plan based on that information would be would have been excellent and and I think uh, some of that stuff was just beginning to come out uh, a little bit more in depth as I as I was done playing uh, and and then on the flip side of that having the information that the stuff that Jesse and his crew do so well uh, you know is is understanding your own guys and and what their strengths are you know the guys that you're going to have on the mound what is his strength what does he do best and and uh, you know to have uh, something like that, uh, where you have your pitcher strengths and and then you have uh, complete information on hitter weaknesses, uh, that would be that would be great to put a game plan together for. <laughs> with. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> well, fans, be sure to be on hand for all the action of the 2019 Mariners season by becoming a season ticket holder. Whether you're looking to spend quality time with your family and friends or have more face time with your employees and clients, make the ballpark your Northwest summer home with packages starting. At just 10 games, check out Mariners.com slash 19 for more information. Well, in hour number two, as we mentioned, this is a full show. We are loaded, and we are really interested to talk with Brian DeLunis, who last year, Brian, was a first-year bullpen coach. In fact, he was his first year in the major leagues. He came from, for lack of a better term, the private sector, and he went from Mariners bullpen coach last year to uh, still somewhat recently being – promoted to the Mariners' Director of Pitching Development and Strategies, and he is really into the biomechanics of pitching and was such an asset immediately for the Mariners. And when we return here on the hot stove, we'll be talking with none other than Brian DeLutis. We've got a lot of pitching conversation coming up after this quick break. We are huddled around the hot stove. Aaron Goldsmith, Gary Hill, Mariners Hall of Famer Dan Wilson, and we are excited for this conversation. A gentleman that we got to know last year for the first time, a first-year Big league coach uh, Brian DeLunis joins us from his home in St. Louis. And Brian, uh, first of all, 
Uh, congratulations on last year and all the impacts that you made to the Mariners in the bullpen. And a further congratulations, Brian, on your still somewhat recent promotion to Director of Pitching Development and Strategies. A happy New Year to you, and how great a news was that for you to find out that uh, after a year in the big leagues, Brian, you're already getting a promotion. Yeah, yeah. Happy New Year's, guys. Yeah, it was uh, uh, it was it was exciting to to find out about it and uh, and to kind of to, to move in that direction. Uh, you know, obviously, I still like coaching. I like being on the field, but I think this is a uh, a little bit more of a challenge and uh, some of the. Some of the interesting aspects that I bring to the table, I get to use uh, use some of those skill sets a little bit more in this position. I think it's a long title, Director of Pitching <laughs> Development and Strategy. So, tell us what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so I, look, I think it's going to encompass uh, you know quite a bit uh, oversight in terms of the the, the our, our pitching um, developmental focus. But uh, in a nutshell, that I think my number one priority really comes down to to player pay, plan, uh, player plans, and probably more specifically, uh, pitcher plans. Um, and you know, we have a group. We actually just had a, a phone call about an hour ago with uh, with our pitching group and uh, talked a little bit more in terms of uh, coordination between our our strength and conditioning groups, our, our medical groups, our our analytics uh, group, and and, and then. You know our high performance group and and our player development group and just trying to put all of those uh, you know all of those visions down uh, to to form one vision uh, you know for for the development of our of our pitchers so uh, that's really the the biggest most important aspect of what we're going to do is is really the pitcher plans the individual pitcher plans is and the goal is obviously to uh, to to you know help our major league pitchers develop uh, and, and improve and and also certainly to to create value at the minor league level and really help our our prospects uh, improve both uh, both being able to get to the major league level and and, and being able to just create more more uh, you know value to themselves. You know, Brian, as a, as a catcher, this time of year was always exciting because you know you're kind of getting ready to go down to spring training and and you know. Uh, especially with, with moves in the offseason, that there are going to be some guys you have to get to know and you have to get to know quickly. This particular uh, spring training adds a little bit more challenge to that because you know, you've know you got the trip to Japan. There's a lot of things that sort of have to get accelerated. How does that change for a pitcher? What what can you expect uh, you know, in, in terms of the pitching staff and, and their preparation to, to be ready in such a short amount of time? Yeah, it's definitely we, we've talked about it a lot, uh, Jim and, and Paul, uh, Paul Davis, the new new big pitching coach, and myself, and and we we've tossed around a lot of those ideas of, of how to get the guys ready, how to prepare them. It, it is a little bit shorter. Who's going to be pitching in Japan, and how many innings do we want those to go out to? Um, obviously, Skip's had a a lot of input in that as well, and um, but yeah, you know, it, the biggest thing is is really is it, you know with Paul being new. Uh, and bringing some new ideas and and and, and his vision to to our, our pitching group and uh, just with so many new familiar you know uh, new unfamiliar faces uh, that we'll all have to kind of get used to um, you know we'll all be in the same boat I think uh, just trying to get guys ready and and getting to know everybody and, and like you said trying to build trust and uh, the catcher pitcher relationship trying to build trust it, it it'll be interesting but. Uh, uh, I, I think we'll, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll be able to get it done, and I think it's something that we all look forward to. It's just kind of almost like hitting the refresh button. 
Brian DeLunis is our guest. He's the Mariners' director of pitching development and strategies. Last year he was the Mariners' bullpen coach. Brian, we've already heard Jerry talk about the use of an opener for every six starts for YK as he transitions from Japanese professional baseball to the major leagues. How much else do you envision the opener being used throughout the season for the Mariners and throughout all of baseball, a trend that we obviously saw uh, develop last year? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see where this this goes. I've heard some people talk about uh, the potential to have uh, a pitching staff uh, essentially made up of, you know, three inning guys, uh, guys who go three innings, and and putting them together in terms of the the lineup that you're facing that day. Uh, I don't think the I personally don't think the opener is going to go away. Uh, I think that there's value there. I think that we we've seen that. I think Tampa Bay. Uh, you know, showed some of that value. I think it's obviously, um, you know, not ideal for a, for a lot of the uh, old school purists. It, it, it seems very uh, silly, I guess, in a way. But um, but I think that any time that we can create value and, and, and we can see the value, um, that it's not it's just, you know, just going to continue to evolve that way. It's not going to go away. So, um, you know, as far as the Mariners this year, uh, I, I think I'd leave that up to Paul and, and, and skip to comment on a little bit. Um, I, I would not be surprised at all to, to see it uh, to see it happen. Um, you know, more often than not, uh, especially more than I know that we played around with it a little bit last year. And I think, in all honesty, I think uh, Skip would have liked to to to, to use used it a few more times. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would think you're going to definitely see more of that this year than, than you saw last year. Last year, of course, your first big league season. What was your biggest takeaway going through your first season? Uh, honestly, how, how good these guys are. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, they, the, the, not, not just the pitchers. I found myself, you know, obviously as the bullpen role. Uh, but more than once, I remember going into to Scott's office and, and just saying, wow, like, like those guys are really good. And, uh, whether it was our guys or uh team that we were playing, um, uh, you, you know, it, it just like, there's not many balls that get hit on the ground that aren't, aren't outs. And there's not many balls that get hit in the air that, that don't leave the yard, um, that, that aren't outs. So, uh, that part to me was, you know, you can sit on, you can sit in TV and watch it. You can sit in the, in the stands and watch it, but you know, until you get there in spring training and you're right on the field with those guys and, and you're and you're around them on a day to day basis, it's that was really the thing that stood out to me the most. And uh, and then the, you know the other part is like the people always say like it uh, it goes by so fast and and it really doesn't. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long long year and uh, I know people say man it's gonna fly by and it goes by so fast and and, and I was like no no it, it didn't it it, it it you know it, it was a full it was a full six months. So, but it was, it was, it was an incredible opportunity for me the uh, first year getting to do that and, and work with the guys and, and, you know, especially the guys that we have were uh, such good guys and uh, easy to work with. And, and it just was a lot of fun. You know, I am curious for you to share the story of how you became a Mariners employee, because I'll tell you, as we continue our chat here with Brian DeLunas, who was recently promoted to the Mariners Director of Pitching Development and Strategies, you know, the story that I have heard, Brian, is that you, coming from the private sector in St. Louis, you were working with, a, really, 
it's funny. This might be David Phelps' biggest contribution to the Mariners when it's all said and done. Yeah. A guy who sadly didn't get to pitch much in a Mariners uniform because of Tommy John that happened in spring training of last year. You were working with him. Former assistant general manager Jeff Kingston gave you a call. And tell us, what happened? Yeah, yeah. So David and I go go back a few years uh, to, to his Marlin days. And, um, you know, he had he had, had a, a surgery to uh, remove some bone chips. And so uh, Jeff had, had checked in uh, through a mutual contact that uh, wanted to call. And, um, you know, honestly, I didn't. I didn't think the phone call would, would – I've talked to several different people in the industry and, and most of the time working in the private sector. Most of the time the conversation lasts about, uh, you know, two minutes. Uh, it's kind of like, hey, okay, great, thanks. You know, we'll be seeing you type of thing. And uh, I, I didn't think it was going to last very long. Um, I was working uh, at the at the facility, and um, it was about 25 degrees outside. I had shorts and a sweatshirt on. So I stepped outside to take the call, and – uh about an hour and a half later, uh, the conversation ended with, uh, with Jeff asking me uh, if I'd ever considered being, uh, you know, working in professional baseball. And, um, you know, honestly, I, I didn't think at the time, I told him at the time, I, I hadn't considered it. Um, I, I didn't have a professional background. Uh, I worked with uh, plenty of, of major league pitchers at the time and, and, and minor league pitchers, and, um, certainly a ton of college and high school guys, but uh, you know, had never played in professional baseball. I never coached in professional baseball. So I just, you know, from my standpoint, I didn't think that there was a clear path, and, and so I hadn't really considered it. And um, you know, Jeff and I just continued to talk, and uh, he he asked me if I would talk to to Scott Service. I talked to Scott for a little bit. I talked to Andy McKay for a little bit, and then kind of circled back with Jeff. And uh, it went really quick. It was a blur, to be honest with you guys. And uh, you know, next thing I know, I'm 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 taking a four and a half hour flight out to Seattle to see the city for the first time. And, um, and, uh, the rest was history. So yeah, it was a really interesting story in terms of, of just, uh, you know, almost sheer coincidence. And, and, and I didn't had it had no idea at the time that Jeff was looking for a bullpen coach and, uh, and we just kind of hit it off and, and went from there. Did you find it to be a struggle at all as somebody who, as you mentioned, had never spent time in, even minor league baseball, let alone major league baseball, to build up a line of credit with these players very quickly on the job? Because it seemed like uh, everyone gravitated to you like you had been at this level for your entire career. Yeah, it, you know, I, it was something I kind of took away from Mel uh, early on uh, was to, um, you know, kind of veteran advice, but uh, you know, keep the ears open and the mouth shut a little bit and, 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 and listen and, uh, and just prove to the guys that you're there to help them and, and that you want to help them. And, um, you know, the, the thing that I realized real quickly was that if you, if you show the guys that you care and if you show them that you can help, uh, those two things generally take you a far, a far, uh, you know, pretty far. And, uh, I'll be honest with you. People always ask me, you know, that's one of the biggest questions is, you know, how, how, how did you handle it when people would ask and, uh, you know, how much, how often did you get asked? Like, you know, where, where did you play and what levels did you play at? And I, I only got asked once all year and maybe it's because some people heard or kind of found out through the grapevine, but, uh, I was only asked by one player, uh, all year and that was August. Um, so it, it never really became a factor. I, again, I think I just, I really listened to, 
to, to Mel and Pete and, and uh, Pete Harnish and, and uh, Jim and, and all those guys that had done it and had been there. Uh, I really kind of paid attention to those guys in spring training and listened to them. And, um, you know, I, it, it helped, um, you know, having Phelps, I think, to, to kind of vouch for you uh, because I think the guys, uh, everybody on the staff really respected David and, and, and um, you know, he had that kind of veteran presence. Um, so, I think having him in your corner and saying, hey, you know, he's a good guy, he, he can really help you listen to him, I think that went a long way. I think without David it might have been a little bit tougher. But uh, uh, for me, honestly, it was, it was a pretty easy uh, transition to, 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 you know, have not been there to, to just walk into the, the major league clubhouse and, and kind of fit in. Brian, again, you know, having been through it a little bit and, and understanding what goes on and some of the shenanigans that go on down in a, in a major league bullpen, <laughs> I give you credit for lasting yeah. the entire season uh-huh. down there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but take us through a little bit of it. Like wh- what does go on there? What sort of preparations going on? And, and can you just kind of walk us through a, a couple of the, maybe the routines that guys have down there in the bullpen during a ball game? Yeah. So, you know, one of the big things now is, is that there's a few of the guys who, who really are into the, um, you know, the, uh, the weighted balls or the heavy balls, plyo balls, if you call them that. And, um, you know, that's one of the biggest things that, that the timing aspect of, um, of of when guys need to kind of start their routine and, and, and start to prepare uh, for a possible outing. And, uh, you know, I, I learned a ton from those, especially the veteran guys. I learned a ton from those guys. And, um, you know, one of the biggest things was uh, the, the, the ability to, to keep it loose uh, you know, for a long enough time and then decide when to kind of flip that switch. And that was something that we talked about was, you know, you have to kind of watch the game. If you've got Marco and he's cruising out there, we're up five to nothing and it's the fifth inning, you know, he's at 60 pitches. We, we're probably okay for a couple innings. You know, you can kind of relax a little bit, but you keep your eye on the game. But, um, you know, when to flip that switch and then they turn it on and, and again, those guys are professionals. They're 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 professionals for a reason, and uh, they know that okay, now it's time to go to work. And uh, the the one thing that I learned real quick is is to uh, not take for granted, um, you know, those guys and their routines and their and their preparation, um, because um, you know, if the phone rings, every one of those guys is on high alert, and they're looking, you know, who, who is he at? Who's he, who's he looking for? Who's he asking? Uh, who do they want? That type of thing, and so um, we need to be able to get that information to them quick, and and then um, you know let them know who's going, and and then if we've got an idea, you know who's going to be up next, or who's going to close out the inning, or if this that type of thing, then then we let them know that as well. But uh, it's a delicate line because you don't want to give them too much because all of a sudden that's something you know you know you guys certainly know how something will change in the dugout. And uh, and now I'm the bad guy because I said, hey, you know, pitcher A, you're going to go in after this inning, and now he's not going in. So um, that was really the biggest takeaway for me. I, you know, as far as preparing guys for the game, a lot of it's just kind of touching up on information, um, possible pinch hitters, um, you know, uh, where we where where we want to attack. A lot of guys want to know uh, what it, where a put away pitch is, you know, where I can strike a guy out at. And then they want to know what they can use to get back into account uh, and what they can use to, you know, who's going to swing early, that type of stuff. So just reminding guys of that, who runs, uh, you know, who first pitch swings, those kind of things. But um, everybody's kind of got their own, you know, that, that's part of, I think, being a good bullpen coach is, that I learned 
was is knowing uh like the back of your hand what every single guy's routine is and you know how much time they need and um you know kind of kind of foreseeing the future and being able to 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 let those guys know so that they can get into their own personal routines Brian, we knew we would love talking to you. You did not disappoint. Uh, final question, will we see you much this year? Will you be based out of T-Mobile Park? Will you be on the road? I know you'll be a busy guy. Where, where will we be able to find you? Yeah, so I'm, I'm sitting in an empty house right now. I'm, I'm actually sitting on a mattress on an empty house. We're moving to Seattle. Uh, my family is moving to Seattle this Saturday. Wonderful. So our, yeah, all of our, all of our house uh, personal belongings have shipped out already. Uh, our car has shipped out already, so... Uh, we move out Saturday, and then it's a quick turnaround for me. Obviously, I, I fly down to Peoria uh, the following uh, Friday. Uh, and then I'm going to be based out of Seattle for the most part this year um, and working with the, uh, the, the the big league team at home. Um, and then when the team travels, I'll probably make two or three road trips, maybe four. Uh, but uh, when the team travels, I'll, I'll either work at home, uh, working on the amateur draft and, and, and other things of that nature, or – uh, I might sneak up to Tacoma uh, or the other affiliates. So I'll be, you know, for the most part, I'll be based out of Seattle. I, I guess probably some of that also depends on uh, on Skip and if he wants me around. So <laughs> you know how that goes. If he if he wants me around, I'll probably make some more of those road trips. And if he's doing okay, then I'll probably stay busy at uh, at T-Mobile. Well, congrats on the move for sure. And when you get here, no, Brian, we'll yeah, have we're, we'll... we're really looking forward to it. My family fell in love with the city last year and. Uh, you know, for us being from the Midwest, and uh, we're really looking forward to, to getting out there and starting our, our new chapter out there. We can go on a toasted rav hunt together. Find see if there's there you any, go. Yeah, see if there's anything out here that will quite rival the hill. <laughs> hey, Brian, yeah, this we're has been already trying to to, to uh, figure out if we can uh, ship some pizza sauce and how we can ship Provel cheese. <laughs> Provel cheese, kind of fantastic. That's wonderful. We're trying to figure it out. Some gooey butter cake. Uh, we'll get on order yeah. for you. Hey, uh, Brian, this has been awesome, man. Thank you. We know it's late there, and although the mattress sounds lovely. Uh, thank you <laughs> yeah. so much for uh, joining us here on the hot stove. We can't wait to see you in Arizona. Awesome, guys. Thanks for having me. You got it, man. There is Brian DeLunis. What a guy. Hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. Now, the Mariners Director of Pitching Development and Strategies. Well, enjoy Mariners baseball in style in 2019 with an all-new 10-game Terrace Club Flex Plan. Customize your own Season ticket package by hand-selecting the games of your choice in the popular club level at T-Mobile Park, which includes access to exclusive concessions and a full bar. Visit mariners.com slash 19 to start building your plan today. Well, this show just continues. Uh, as we come back, we will be hearing from the Northwest's own Rob Nyer, the recent award-winning author for his book Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. We look forward to talking with Rob after this timeout. Glad you're with us tonight for the hot stove. Aaron Goldsmith, Mariners Hall of Famer Dan Wilson, Gary Hill. And we are really excited for our next guest. Uh, you have heard him throughout the years on Mariners Radio when he has been by the ballpark. He is an author of many books, including his latest, Powerball, The Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game, which just recently uh, won the Casey Award for the best baseball book of the year. He is Portland, Oregon's own Rob Nyer. Rob, Happy New Year to you, man. Thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, it's my pleasure, guys. Thanks. And Rob, I was just laughing during that commercial break because I was thinking, when was the last time I saw Rob in person? And it was me walking out of the home radio booth at the ballpark, you walking into the broadcast wing, me not knowing you would be there, <laughs> basically running into each other and going, hey, Rob, 
Will you come on the round table? <laughs> it's true. I, I've, it's got a point where I sort of count on that uh, when I come up there. Well, we talked about your book that day on the round table. It is a very interesting premise for a book. You basically look at one game in September of 2017 between the A's and the Astros, and you look at it through uh, various prisms of the players, the managers, the coaches, the executives. You have kind of a numerical bend on it as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? It has obviously come with very high praise already. Well, uh, it, 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 the, the model was, there have been a few books written like this over the years, but uh, uh, the one that really sort of impressed me uh, when I was much younger was a book called Nine Innings by Dan Okrand. Dan uh, wrote about a game in 1982 between the Orioles and the the Brewers, and, and he delved quite deeply into not just the game on the field, but the game behind, behind the scenes in the front office, all of that stuff. Uh, Dan spent about five years working on that book. Um, so I was uh, thrilled when an editor came to me in the fall of 2017 and said, Rob, I, I'd love for someone to, to, to write a modern version of Nine Innings. Uh, and I, I think you'd be the guy for it. The catch was I had about eight months to write it, not five years. So it was, <laughs> it was a different book in that regard. But um, I was fortunate enough to talk to a number of players in the game I wrote about and people in the front office. I think I did 40, 45 interviews. And that was, for me, the most rewarding part of the project. I love nothing more than, than learning from, from baseball people. When I think about your book, I mean, it, it's overwhelming to think about the amount of change, not only from the just five years ago, the amount of change there's been uh, from the Moneyball era to, to your book now. It's incredible to think about. Well, that's right, and that's why I didn't have five years to write mine. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I had to write it in one winter, basically, because if I had waited longer than that, it would have been outdated by the time it came out. Uh, so uh, I wrote the book... Um, I, I wrote about a game in the fall of 2017, and, and the book came out uh, last October. Well, it was funny because when we were talking to Dan Wilson about our guest list tonight, and we mentioned that you were on here, he perked up immediately. And he had – Rob, he's got a burning question for you, and we th we think, Rob, that you are the perfect guy to answer it. I hope so. Well, Rob, you know, as, as a catcher, I, I continually hear we, we talk about the changes in the game and, and how this has come about. Uh, and, and so quickly, but as a catcher, you continue to hear about this uh, automated strike zone, and, and will it come, and is it coming, and, and where is uh, the, the the umpires and the strike zone, where where is it going? And you know, just curious, your opinion as as you know, do you hear about that? Do you do you see us going to an automated strike zone eventually, or w what are your thoughts? I, I do think it's going to happen. Um, I, I think it's very difficult to say when because you're talking really not about technology. I think the technology, if it doesn't exist today, uh, could be created fairly quickly. Uh, but you're, talk you're talking not about technology, you're talking about people. Uh, I I I'll be honest, and um, I, I don't have any idea how you feel about this. Um, I, I was arguing for many years that uh, collisions at home plate should basically be outlawed, or as nearly as possible, because I hate seeing guys get hurt. Um, whether it's the runner or the catcher. I remember Mike McFarlane, who I don't know if you guys were in the league at the same time, but Mike was a big favorite of mine, a catcher with the Royals, and he suffered a, a bad injury one year um, when he was blocking the plate with one of his legs. And I, I argued for years that those should go away, and it did happen. 
but it, it was a long process, and it, it wasn't that nobody could think of a good rule. It was that you had to everybody had to sort of come to grips with with it, something that would change the game in some sort of a fundamental way. And I think the same is true of the automated strike zone. I think it, it will happen. Uh, I don't know if it's within three years or ten years. I got to tell you, Rob, we once watched a highlight in the home radio booth at the ballpark of a catcher getting his clock cleaned. This was last year, and I showed it to Dan, and I said, Dan, is this the dirtiest slide you've ever seen or what? And Dan said, catcher should have gotten out of the way. (laughs) I was like, what? A catcher is saying this about a catcher needing to essentially be carried off the field? So you should argue well, about that I for think now. That, that with the growing awareness of concussions, it was inevitable something would happen. It was just a question of when. Uh, and I think there are some external forces that leave the automated strike zone. And by the way, umpiring is, yes, better in my opinion than it's ever been. But it's also getting harder and harder all the time because of the stuff that pitchers throw nowadays. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you, you're right. You, you mentioned that. You know, back in the day, the, the umpires had no accountability. There was no grading system that was in place. Now we have this pretty elaborate grading system, and and kind of at the same time, like you mentioned, uh, pitchers' velocities now up ninety-five to a hundred is very common. Uh, you see pitchers using the top of the strike zone where you didn't see that before. So it does. There are a number of factors that have kind of uh, you know contributed to to it being a more difficult task behind the plate. Yeah, that's right. It just, uh, uh, and it's not going to get easier, not the way these guys throw. Rob Nyer is our guest. He's a Portland native and the author of Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. Rob, I'm curious. It's funny because on this show a year ago, when the winter free agent market was moving very sluggishly, we all looked at one another and we said, well, it's going to be slow this winter, but tell you what, next winter, when Machado and Harper are on the market, won't be so slow then. Well, it is as slow, if not slower, this year. Can you begin to pinpoint exactly what is happening, especially with those two big fish and this market, and why it is that we are going longer and longer and deeper and deeper into spring training before so many players are coming to contract agreements? Well, I, I, having talked to some people in front offices over the years, um, there's just there's basically been a, a culture change within baseball. Uh, it is that teams don't have the money. You guys are well aware of how much money's floating around in baseball. Some teams have more than than others, no question. But revenues are up every year. Um, uh, there's money out there, but nobody wants to get stuck with that contract anymore, right? The contract that you want to unload two or three years down the line. Uh, I mean, and there are so many examples going back to the 1970s, but it didn't really affect the change within the culture until you had this generation of uh, analysts who work for the teams who, who now can back up their warnings with hard, cold data. You know, I always want people to understand that that. It's not that nobody wants to sign, for example, Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. Every team in baseball, or almost every team, would love to have both of those guys. The question is always going to be for how much. And there was a time when it seemed that the the players, and and really their agents, were the ones who were deciding how much. And that's flipped completely 180 degrees. And uh, now we might see, we used to see, 
three or four or five or six deals every winter, we sort of scratched our heads and say, well, he's a pretty good player, but that's a lot of money for a guy who's whatever, 29, 30, 32, 36. Uh, and now I think there was one of those deals last year. I think the Eric Hosmer deal left a lot of people, including me, scratching their heads. Uh, but that was about it. Not the guys didn't get paid. They just didn't get paid what they would have been paid five years earlier. Robin, in the middle of a move right now, which is awful, but the big benefit was, uh, as I was putting some books on my bookshelf today, I ran into one of my favorites, and that's the big book of baseball lineups. So I flipped it open, I went to the Mariners section, and Edgar Martinez, you had him there as the DH, the third baseman as well, and you're very glowing about his Hall of Fame caliber career, but as you pointed out at the time, his prospects didn't look that great to actually go in the Hall of Fame, and here we are just a week later and 10 years later in the Hall of Fame. What's your reaction to Edgar going into the Hall of Fame? Well, I think, for one thing, I'm he clearly a deserving player. Yeah. I think that one thing he ran into was an overstuffed ballot. Yeah. Um, there was a pe- period of years, really 8, 10, 12 years, and there were legitimately, you could say there were 8, 10, 12, whatever, vi- not just viable, but strong Hall of Fame candidates, and he was just one of them. Uh, and he wasn't at the top of anyone's list. And then you also have some players who really, I think, didn't have strong candidacies, but drew a few votes. So it was inevitable, I think, that it was going to take a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, if you had asked me five years ago, I would have said, eh, I don't know, maybe not, because he started out so slow in terms of the percentage that he was getting. But uh, as you know, he moved up pretty steadily. Uh, and they're also the voting body is different than it was when he first joined the ballot. Uh, the BBWA cut off, cut out a, a lot of voters who hadn't covered baseball in a long time, and and there are a lot of voters now who who are quite frankly a lot younger and pay more attention to the, to the numbers than maybe previous generations did. So I think all that helped him. Um, but I was glad to see him get under the wire. He was going to make it eventually, even if he had to go in through another process someday. But but uh, it's good to see him in now. A couple of final minutes with one of our favorites, baseball writer Rob Nyer. And, Rob, you are such a well-respected writer, and you have been for decades at this point, but your career really began working under Bill James before Bill James was known as widely in the game as he is today. Can you take us back to kind of your earliest days in the profession and what it was like working for Bill James? Any early anecdote or memory or story that might come to mind? Well, so many, but I can tell you for one thing, if you had asked me when I was 19, 18 years old, Rob, if you could have any job in the world, what would it be? I, I, I literally would have said work for Bill James. Uh, that's how obsessed I was about his work, but I had no idea how to make that happen. And when he hired me, I was a college dropout no prospects. I was roofing houses. I've probably told the story in your show before, but, but uh, Bill just sort of plucked me from nothing, um, hired me as his research assistant, and, and I was with him for four years. It was, it was a tremendous experience uh, for a lot of, in a lot of ways. Bill allowed me to write, to publish in his books. Um, he let me just sort of hang out and talk baseball, which was great. Uh, uh, the story I had told before over the years, because it always stuck in my head, was uh, one year, uh, the Royals, uh, who were my favorite team and Bills, too, at that time, traded for uh, Kevin McReynolds, an outfielder who at that point was past his prime. And still a, 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 not a, an objective about the Royals 
as I would become later, I got real excited and, and uh, I said, Bill, boy, this is going to be great. He's going to, this is exactly what the Royals need, right? He just sort of looked at me, said, eh, maybe, walked into his office, closed the door, came out about four hours later with a giant pile of, of dot matrix printer paper, which contained this study that he had run of players just like McReynolds. And guess what? Players like McReynolds don't typically do very well, and Kevin McReynolds did not do very well. So uh, Bill had that sort of mind that he could just apply to a problem, and, uh, and, and he educated me and uh, a lot of other people over the years. And finally, Rob, exciting news on your front. We mentioned your book, but you will be doing a Sabercast, a Saber podcast starting this 2019 baseball season. Can you give us just uh, some ideas as to what that might be featuring? Well, I think we're probably going to focus on all of the, the – the, the, we'll look forward more than backward. And I love the history of the game, as you know. Um, but I think that we'll, we'll, we'll talk to people who are in some of these emerging technologies, the wearables and uh, TrackMan and um, people who are writing about these things, also the people who are creating the technology. So that, that's going to be a lot of fun. I, I did a podcast when I was at Fox Sports a few years ago and really enjoyed it. And I, I, the other thing that, is, uh, as you know, I'm going to my second, second year as the commissioner of the West Coast League, which is also something I never thought I would get to do. So it's been, uh, it's been a pretty, pretty fun ride. That's right, Kamish. Sorry to leave that out. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how I didn't lead with Commissioner Nyer. Uh, Rob, hey, we, we hope that you surprise us at T-Mobile Park at some point like you did last year. We know you were researching the book. We hope it doesn't take a book project for you to swing by uh, the ballpark up the highway. So we hope to see you around at some point this summer. Well, I will be up for uh, FanFest for sure, representing the West Coast League. So I will see oh, great. you then, definitely. Nice. Wonderful. Rob, thanks for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Take care. Commissioner Rob Nyer, also the author of Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game, and just a just tremendous baseball writer, as I'm sure you all know. And uh, we look forward to that podcast for sure coming up this 2019 season. Well, buy more and save. Discounted tickets are available for groups of 20 or more. Flexible seating options, private hospitality, and picnic packages are all available to complete your group today at the ballpark. For more information and to book your 2019 group date, just visit mariners.com slash groups. We've got more on the hot stove coming right up after this quick break. We're wrapping up the hot stove. This has been a fun one tonight. Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, and Gary Hill. You know, guys, it was a busy weekend, or busy week, I should say, at the ballpark. It was media week at T-Mobile Park, and a number of the New faces were there, J.P. Crawford, Justice Sheffield, Malik Smith. Did you notice, like I did, that they have a tendency to command the podium very nicely? Yeah, that was fun. Well, we had a chance to uh, hear from General Manager Jerry DePoto on the latest Wheelhouse podcast, which just came out today. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, uh, just like the official Mariners baseball podcast, which, by the way, it's worth noting that the Hot Stove show every Tuesday night you can find on the official Mariners baseball podcast the following day. So the previous episodes uh, from – this month, and if you miss Jason Stark in the first hour, you can find him on the podcast tomorrow. Just go to the iTunes store and search Mariners Baseball Podcast. Who's Jerry on the wheelhouse with? Oh, it's just great, great air. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it's funny because uh, earlier today uh, he told the story of uh, how impressed he was with the guys in Media Day and uh, a little soiree back at Shade Poto. Malik Smith. I was on vacation with my family in Hawaii while we were negotiating with Yusei Kikuchi. Scott Boris uh, seemed like we were getting close and, and there was going to be reason for me to be back in Seattle. So I hopped on a plane. I came back to Seattle. And we, we had the, the 
dinner with Yusei and his wife, Rumi, and their translator. Great guy uh, at the Met. Mm-hmm. We, I think we shared that we the heard last this story, one. Yes. Well, the day that existed in between the, the Met dinner and Yusei Kikuchi's uh, press conference, which was January 2nd, I got a phone call from Malik Smith. And I was standing in my kitchen. It's about 6 o'clock at night in the West, which makes it about 9 in the evening where, where Malik says. And, I, and I'm, I'm cooking a steak. And Malik's calls were generally just catching up, talking, uh, questions. And he said, are you in a restaurant? And I said, no, no, I'm in my kitchen. He said, are you washing dishes? I said, no, I'm cooking dinner. He said, you cook? And I said, sure I do. He said, what do you cook? So I took a picture of it, and I sent it to him. And he said, oh, man, that looks delicious. But when are you feeding me? And I said, you just let me know. So prior to media day, this past uh, Thursday morning, it, Malik said to me, you just going to play me or are you going to cook for me? And I said, I, well, I'll cook for you whenever you want. So he said, tomorrow night, what if I told you I wanted a steak? I said, I, I, I think I can deliver on that. He said, what if I told you I want asparagus? I said, then I will make those asparagus dance. He said, what if I told you I wanted some creamy, tasty mashed potatoes? I said, that's not going to be a problem. So Malx came over for dinner on Friday night with 23 of his closest friends. You're not serious. Yeah. We, we had, not, uh, no, he did not bring 23 people. All of our guys, Malx, Marco, okay. Mitch, all right. this uh, isn't like Justice, JP, all right. our, our front office group, wives, friends. It, it turned into a, a soiree in the backyard. It went on until what wound up being the early hours of Saturday morning. But I, I, feel, like, I feel like the steak and asparagus part of it came through with, with, with flying colors. We had to bail on the mashed potatoes because mashed potatoes for 24 can get a little gluey. Let's call I mean, it. you don't know how to do it? Yeah, I would yeah. say so. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how, so I had to employ my sous chef, my lovely <laughs> wife, and, and uh, she came up with a, a nice ham and scallop potato side dish that worked out quite well. So just to understand that you, you grilled nearly 25 steaks. Yeah, which is to say 24. <laughs> and, and we ate all of them. It was great, yeah. We got to know them quite well over the course of this week or 10 days. And when I say we, our front office, our, our PR, our community groups, they spent so much time with us. And, you know, whether it was clinics or media events or the like, they're extremely polished. They're well-spoken. They're very talented young players. And they really don't have an interest in, in being a part of a step back because to them, this is opportunity. And when they walk out there on the field, like I have said many times to our season ticket holders and and in public, uh, like these types of, of get-togethers, while we, from a roster perspective, may look at it as it was a step back, we're now we have a pretty good team on the field, and we feel like we can go out and compete. And for these guys, every game is a game to go win. They're not going out there with the intent that. Well, I hope we're good by 2021. Right. They're going out there to win that day and get three hits and throw a shutout because that's what players do. The thing that impressed me most about the three guys is, uh, and because they were here all week, we had a chance to, to maybe get to know them in a different way than a lot of the other guys. These are really smart young guys. They're, they're sharp. They put words together. Their thoughts are very clear. They know they're good. They know what the opportunity is in front of them. And, and I thought for them to come into a new organization with Malik Smith being a two-year major league player. And, and a J- second-time Mariner. That's right. Yeah. yeah. However brief. And, I, and I'm probably never going to stop taking <laughs> a ribbing for that. But, 
you know, Malik's two-year player. JP's got just about a year of Major League service. And for Justice, it's just a couple of weeks. They walked up to the podium, and they handled it like they've been doing this all their lives. Danny, make those asparagus dance, my friend. I love it. Now, this is the we talked to Rob Nyer about how baseball has changed. This is how baseball has changed. Did you ever go over to Woody Woodward's house for steaks? No, but it's, it did sound delicious. <laughs> I will say that. No question about it. Good stories there from the Wheelhouse podcast. Uh, G-Man, this was a fun one, man. This is a great show. This is a lot of fun. It was Radio Genius. Let's let's tap the brakes just a little bit. Although, we did have phenomenal guests. Remember, you can always listen to the show in the days to follow on the Mariners' official baseball podcast. Our thanks to Jason Stark, newly minted Hall of Famer, Jesse Smith, the Mariners' Director of Baseball Analytics. Also, Brian DeLunis and Rob Nyer, award-winning author. We will talk to you again next Tuesday night. So, for the Mariners' Hall of Famer, Dan Wilson, Gary Hill, I'm Aaron Goldsmith. Good night. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.